Welcome to Fronteras, a program that explores issues at the border and beyond through the lens of arts, culture, and history. I'm Norma Martinez with Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. Many civil rights movements in Texas were never told. Some of those movements were large and involved marches and riots, like the March for Justice for Santos Rodriguez, the Dallas teen murdered by a cop 50 years ago, or the Uvalde school walkout. Others were small and involved something as quiet as sitting at a counter or refusing to vacate a home. Researchers with the Civil Rights and Black and Brown Oral History Project traveled across Texas to gather stories of black and brown resistance. Their broad collaboration resulted in a vast online archive of interviews with people involved in the movement and in a book that tells some of those stories. The book is Civil Rights in Black and Brown, Histories of Resistance and Struggle in Texas. It's a collection of essays that tell the stories and histories lived by the people who shared their experience with researchers. We're talking today with two of the book's co-editors, Dr. Max Krokmal, professor of history at the University of New Orleans, and Dr. Todd Moy, professor of history and director of the Oral History Program at the University of North Texas. Also joining us is contributor and researcher Dr. Sandra Enriquez, Associate Professor of History at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Krokmal says the idea for the project began around 2013. He says he and his students discovered a hidden civil rights history. And it was just clear that there were a lot of stories out there about social movements in Texas, about the Black and Latino civil rights struggles that just hadn't been recorded, hadn't been documented at all. You know, so I started doing a little bit of that research with my students. It, it seemed like we had an urgent task to try to get these histories recorded while we could. You know, many of the people who had lived the history were getting up there in age, and, and it was really important to us that we go out and, and hear their stories while we still could. We should back up and just say that oral history exists in, in large part to supplement and really correct the written documentary record. The archives that are out there upon which so much of history, written history has been based, are, are rather biased. You have to have a tremendous amount of resources in order to have an archive. You have to first somehow collect the documents in the first place, which means that you have a certain amount of stability and probably a secretary or administrative assistant to keep your files. Then those files need to be judged worthy of preservation. They need to end up in an archive. The archive has to value that. They have to put it in a climate-controlled space. They have to index it and make it available to researchers. So what that has meant is that all archives really bend toward the powerful and toward the well-resourced, toward relatively wealthy white men. And so to democratize the historical record, to bring in other voices that have been locked out of, of the archive, a whole bunch of us right all over the country, all over the world, conduct oral history interviews as a way to supplement and to, as I said, even correct the record by providing a more diverse, inclusive range of voices. And sometimes through oral history fieldwork, we are also fortunate to have people share documents with us, people who have collected their own attic collections or, or, you know, a closet full of papers or interviews or whatever they might have. And so often they'll share those with us and, and teach us about why they collected them and why they found that history significant. The last thing I'll say is, yeah, you know, every... Every historical source we scrutinize, uh, we don't take any document as a complete truth on the face of it without somehow checking it against other documents or, or finding ways to judge its veracity. 
So oral histories are no more or less reliable than any other historical source, except that the people we interview are people who are close to the action, people who have lived experiences that put them in a position to be able to recount an event with a degree of intimacy that, that some journalist who showed up from outside and you know fired off a newspaper report the same night you know, might not have had access to. So in, in some ways, oral histories teach us meaning, but I think they also do get us closer to the truth. Well, Sandra, you participated in some of the collections of these oral histories. Can you talk a little bit about the process in making your subjects comfortable? Because I would assume that many of these interviews were done in their own homes, which is already one source of comfort and stability. You're giving them the liberty of time, I'm assuming. You're not just looking for a particular soundbite like a journalist would or a a TV reporter would for, you know, a four-minute or a two-minute package. So talk a little bit about the process of gathering these interviews. So I was part of both summers when we were out collecting, you know, and documenting the voices of community activists across the state. So we are on a time crunch in a way, right, trying to get connected to as many people as possible. And in a way that kind of conflicts with how oral historians are trained, right? We're asked to build rapport and trust because the folks who are sharing their stories with us, they don't owe us anything. Uh, They're entrusting us to preserve their voices and their life stories, and they don't owe us anything. So in the process, right, like we spend time in different sites across Texas. And one, there's never enough time, right? But we had to be cognizant of coming in, especially for some of us as community outsiders. I did field work in El Paso. I am from El Paso. I study and research El Paso. I went to school there. But going into parts of South Texas, for example, where communities are similar, it's border community, but I was a complete outsider. Uh, There's different dynamics that we had to quickly kind of immerse ourselves into, learn those stories. And then I think some of the bulk of the work that was done before the fieldwork started was connecting with community partners and uh, with folks who had connections in, in these communities. And then when we arrived as a team, because we were in teams of two as oral historians, which also adds another dimension of creating trust, we didn't necessarily just come in and like pull out the camera. We were, for the most part, trying to speak to them, talk about the project. Uh, We approached this with a lot of empathy, a lot of respect, and a lot of recognizing our own privileges and being humbled as well by the power dynamics that are part of the process. I think that in showing this relationship of care, of we wanted to learn your story and respecting right the things that our narrators wanted to share with us, that we gave them the time to share what they wanted to share as well, right? Like we had our questions, we had highlights, but sometimes some of the best I think tidbits or stories that came out of the oral histories or things that really caught our attention when it came to movements and the histories of these struggles across Texas was when we gave the narrator space to share and reflect on their own activism. And I think that that was the most powerful part. And I have to say that we got very lucky that people, one, were open to sharing their stories with us, but two, that they realized the power of this particular project. You know, once we met with a few people, they knew we could gather up 
other folks. And so they then helped us connect to other community activists and not just necessarily like what we deem as like community activists, right? But like everyday folks who also participated in these movements, whose voices don't necessarily get amplified and elevated um, in the historical record, then I think that is something that I will be forever just thankful for because yeah, again, like they don't owe us their stories, but folks saw the value of not only sharing their stories, but how we approached it. And I think that speaks to the training and to the kind of culture of empathy and care that we were trying to carry with us uh, along the process. Well, Todd, these stories, these oral histories have been compiled into a set of essays in civil rights in black and brown. All these different versions of resistance that are put into example in each of these essays. You know, some of the stories may be familiar to some people who are familiar with the civil rights movements, but what were some of the the stories that are highlighted in this collection of essays that you probably didn't know about prior to you listening to these stories and publishing these essays. What stood out to you the most about this collection? I'm not a native Texan. Uh, I had never been to Texas before I was dropped off for grad school in Austin in 1993. So, you know, I didn't grow up taking Texas history in in middle school. Well, well, I have to say, most people who grew up in Texas still don't know (laughs) Texas history. So (laughs) fair enough. Fair enough. So I I have had a lot to learn throughout this process. I've lived off and on in Texas for, what, 30 years now. So I've learned a lot both inside this project and outside of it. So a lot of it was new to me. But, you know, we went into this thinking that perhaps one of the outcomes would be a narrative history of civil rights organizing in Texas along the lines of some of the academic books that other scholars have written about states like Mississippi and Louisiana and Georgia. The deeper we got into it, the harder it seemed like it would be to create that book because it's just such a big, complex place. And it's hard to make a generalization about civil rights organizing in East Texas that fits West Texas. And it's hard to say something about Houston that looks similar to what happens in perhaps rural North Texas. Towards the end of the interviewing process, one of the things that we have to pat ourselves on the back on as organizers is that we put together these debriefing sessions where everyone involved in the project got together at midway points and at the end point of the project. And we just got together in a room and talked about all the things we were learning and trying to make sense of them. Towards the end of that process, we realized we have experts in Texas history in this room. Sandra, with her deep experience in El Paso, that was even deeper after having done interviews there, was the person to write about some aspect of civil rights history in El Paso. David Robles, who was her interviewing partner uh, that first summer, a native of the Rio Grande Valley, he was the expert to write about the police riot in FAR. You could go down the list. Toel Zapata had developed this real expertise in Mexican-American communities in West Texas, and especially the Brown Parade organizing in West Texas. Each one of these people just had developed a really deep understanding and expertise based on what they had heard from their oral history interviewees. And it just made so much sense for us to approach the history of civil rights organizing in Texas by going into these deep dives in individual communities. 
it, perhaps counterintuitively, it seemed like the way to tell the story of the whole state was to not try to make generalizations about the whole state, but to just really go deep into individual communities. So that's the approach that the Civil Rights in Black and Brown book takes. Each of the chapters is deeply researched in the archives, but really highlights the oral history interviews that were conducted in those various communities. Todd Moy is a professor of U.S. history at the University of North Texas and is co-editor of Civil Rights in Black and Brown. We're also talking with another of the book's co-editors, Max Krokmal, a professor of U.S. history at the University of New Orleans. Also joining us is contributor Sandra Enriquez, an associate professor of history at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. When we come back, the researchers in the Civil Rights in Black and Brown Oral History Project discovered numerous examples of resistance against Jim Crow and Juan Crow in Texas. We saw African-American and Mexican-American people coming up with all sorts of creative ways to fight back, some of them very quiet and quotidian, and others much more dramatic. Our conversation continues next on Fronteras. Welcome back to Fronteras. I'm Norma Martinez with Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. Stories of black and brown civil rights movements in Texas are numerous and varied, but struggled to see the light of day outside of their own communities. African-Americans fought for equity in the small towns of East Texas. Chicanos and Latinos struggled for self-determination in South and West Texas. Black and brown coalitions formed in urban areas to counter police violence. Their stories are told in the Civil Rights in Black and Brown Oral History Project and in the book Civil Rights in Black and Brown, Histories of Resistance and Struggle in Texas. We're talking to the book's co-editors, Todd Moy and Max Krokmal, and to contributor Sandra Enriquez, all historians. Krokmal says the reason many of these stories of resistance are not known is because many communities in which they happened were in denial of the systemic racism within city and county lines. Everywhere you went, they would say, oh yeah, things were kind of bad here, but they were much worse down the road. (laughs) And actually that kind of occurs across the nation and across the South and Uh, People keep pushing the buck down the road. And Todd sometimes says that we took this as a dare, right? Okay, there was no civil rights movement here. Let's talk to people and find out if that's true or not. And turns out that, you know, there were movements everywhere. There was racism everywhere. And so I think, you know, that was a first finding of the book as a whole to think about that, you know, despite the many protestations, Texas very much was part of the Jim Crow South. And it was very much part of what we call the Juan Crow Southwest. There were twin caste systems that existed in the state and that had an overbearing effect on everyday lives of people, black, Latino, and white in the state throughout the first two-thirds of the 20th century and, and even of now into the 21st. The interviews really detail the contours of those caste systems. They reveal the way in which it permeated all different aspects of life. They reveal that Juan Crow, even though it didn't exist in the statutes, was very much a de jure system of segregation, one that was enforced by state power and created by state action and recreated and expanded by state action, whether that was through the schools, which of course are state agencies, through residential patterns enforced by local governments, or through policing, right, which again is a state police force, right, whether it's local or the Texas Rangers, and we all know that agency's sordid history so that was one finding. And then along with that, we saw, you know, ubiquitous resistance 
to racial domination. We saw African-American and Mexican-American people coming up with all sorts of creative ways to fight back, some of them very quiet and quotidian, and others much more dramatic, to massive direct action demonstrations and marches that hadn't been reported in the newspapers, that had never been documented before people told us these stories. So that was really exciting. And I think, yeah, school segregation activated many people, along with occupational discrimination, you know, employment discrimination. You know, folks fought for opportunity and rights, but they really fought for advancement, for upward mobility, for full participation in the economic and political life of our state and nation. They resisted police brutality and, and state-sanctioned violence. And we heard story after story about that all over the state. And it was really often very difficult to hear those stories. And, and we spent a lot of time at our debriefs, you know, just kind of thinking through the the power of those stories and the trauma of the telling of those stories and of the difficulty of listening to them and really the sacred duty to try to tell those stories faithfully and in new ways and to new audiences. People also engaged in, of course, political resistance. They built all sorts of different forms of political power at the local and, and state and regional levels. And as Sandra shows in her chapter and others in the book as well, there was a million creative efforts at community-controlled institution building when it became clear that the schools were not integrating, that power would not be shared easily. African-Americans and Mexican-Americans both built new institutions and, and came up with new ways forward, whether through Black Power and the, and the Chicana movement or just through various local associations that didn't appear radical but were nonetheless plowing new ground and fighting those systems of racial domination. So it was really powerful to see it all come together. And I'm, I'm so grateful to all of the narrators who shared their stories with us, and also to all of the researchers who did such a wonderful job of conducting the interviews and interpreting them and helping us to understand these larger stories and larger trends. You know, Sandra, when I was reading this book, it made me think a lot about how black and brown communities you know, normally you think of their civil rights movements as being individual and apart from each other, even they occurred almost concurrently. But you would see coalitions. And it made me think of after the El Paso shooting in 2019, there were so many people in the black community who supported the Hispanic, the Latino community who were grieving these losses from this racist massacre. And then again, we saw during the 2020 George Floyd protests, many in the Latino community stepping up to support the black community against police violence because they have also been subject to that throughout history. It's a, not a well-known coalition between the two groups. Again, they're seen so separately but they have come together in many instances. Yeah. So in our historical kind of like broad historical narratives, we paint the movements as separate and we never necessarily focus in, let's say, on the textbook history on the moments where these two communities came together. But I have to say that even when we don't physically see them, you know, linked in arms at protests, the like Chicano, Chicana civil rights movement and the black civil rights movement, there's communication, uh, there's solidarity, even from afar, right? And movements are going to look different depending on where they are, you know, geographically speaking, the populations of certain communities. But that doesn't mean that they are necessarily living in their own silos, right? 
in my own research, I've seen community members and activists send even just notes of support and solidarity and sending their energy right to be in part with folks from afar, crossing racial lines, even gender lines, and even, you know, like nation state boundaries, right? We, as a society, see these two communities separate, even when, you know, there's been kind of very clear moments of when they came together and even moments where we have to kind of dig deeper and see, you know, other ways in which they show solidarity for one another. And revealing these stories, right, and then revealing these moments and these structures that each community has to dismantle, right, or is protesting against, we see the commonalities. Obviously, for some, Black struggles are not necessarily going to be the same, right, as uh, Mexican-American or Puerto Rican uh, struggles or Asian-American struggles. But there are certain commonalities and parallels, right? So as people learn about these stories or these histories and they see connections, they see that they are oppressed by the same systems, you get these powerful moments in time, right, when we come together and we stand up for one another, whether it be, you know, in 2020 with the murder of George Floyd, whether it is organizing on a similar issue like housing uh, or school segregation uh, or even limiting access to higher education, right? Like you see these moments come together. And even though we might have, you know, different experiences, you do see these parallels where people are like, wow, they're strengthening numbers. And while we may, you know, not have experienced the same exact thing or the same kind of type of discrimination, we've all been oppressed by the same system. And so what does it look like then if we come together and learn from one another, right? And then bring that strength in numbers. And I think that that for me as a historian and as a professor or teacher, that I hope that when I teach my students these moments, uh, these similarities in history, right, these parallels that my students can see, wow, we can learn from the past, right, and try to build a better future by coming together. We're very fractured as a society today, so it's probably my wishful thinking, right, that we should all come together and look out for one another. But I think that that is what is so important to learn our histories, right, and especially these moments you know, when, when people, communities and movements came together to fight for a larger goal. Todd, can you tell us about where listeners who may be interested in reading some of the stories that helped build the Civil Rights Black and Brown book? Can you talk to us a little bit about where they're archived and how people might be able to navigate through those stories? Sure. The interviews live in whole, unedited, at the Portal to Texas History, which is an online digital archive that the University of North Texas supports, uh, texashistory.unt.edu. So if listeners are interested in you know, a full interview with a, a given person, they can find that there. They've been clipped and edited and had keywords attached to them on a digital history uh, website also called Civil Rights in Black and Brown, that's crbb.tcu.edu. And it's entirely searchable. If you're only interested in, you know, a civil rights movement in Houston, you can just search for the keyword Houston and it will bring up hundreds and hundreds of clips of people talking about aspects of civil rights organizing in Houston. 
if you're only interested in the Brown Berets or the Black Panthers or United Fort Worth or some other local organization, you can search for it that way. And it's also organized in a way that if you find an interview about Black Panthers in Dallas, it'll also suggest other clips of interviews with Black Panthers from Houston and Austin and, and other cities around the state so that you can draw connections that way. We wanted to make it possible for users to draw connections in ways that made sense for them. So we've been really gratified in the ways that people are, are using these interviews. We've had some amazing conversations with teachers around the state who are using uh, the interviews. You said a few minutes ago that most people aren't taught this in Texas history in middle school, but hopefully we're making a dent in that because we've had some really rewarding conversations with teachers around the state who are using the interviews that way to expand the stories that they tell in their Texas history classes. You mentioned the chapter of Badevalde that was written by our colleague Maggie Rivas Rodriguez, who a lot of your listeners will know is the director of the VOSIS Oral History Center in Austin, and Benicio Cinta, who's now a journalism professor at UT Arlington. They have this chapter in the book, uh, and Benicio and his partner Steve Arionis did dozens of interviews in Uvalde around the school walkouts that had to do with the mistreatment of Mexican-American families and Mexican-American teachers at Robb Elementary. So when the horrible tragedy occurred at Robb Elementary, people immediately found these interviews. And several journalists around the country used these interviews to tell a deeper story of what Robb Elementary meant in this community, what the deep history that people had with this institution even before the tragedy took place. So the interviews are being used in all sorts of interesting ways like that. Dr. Todd Moy is professor of U.S. history and director of the Oral History Program at the University of North Texas. He's a co-editor of Civil Rights in Black and Brown, Histories of Resistance and Struggle in Texas. We also spoke to the book's co-editor, Dr. Max Krockmall, a professor of U.S. history at the University of New Orleans, and with contributor Dr. Sandra Enriquez, associate professor of history at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Find a link to the Civil Rights in Black and Brown Oral History Project at tpr.org. That's also where you can view a video that gives an overview of the project and explains how you can search the vast archive of interviews. Thanks for joining us for Fronteras. Fronteras is produced by Norma Martinez and Marianne Navarro. Our executive producer is Dan Katz. Our editor is Fernando Ortiz Jr. Charanga Cakewalk composed our theme music. Hear past episodes at tpr.org and on the Fronteras podcast. I'm Norma Martinez with Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. <laughs>